Let's take our Bibles and go to the book of Judges, chapter 16. Last Sunday, I began a study in prison experiences. And last Sunday, we looked at the prison of promotion. Now, today, I want to look at the prison of purification. As I said last week, when you look at the Old Testament law, there's no allowance in there for jails. The sins were to be dealt with right away, and the punishment was according to the sin. The judgment was according to the sin. And God did not establish in the Old Testament law prisons. However, He allowed prisons to be created by other nations, and He even allowed the people of God to go into those prisons. And there are several prison experiences in the Bible. We're going to look at some of them. I don't know how many of them we will look at, but this afternoon we're looking at the prison of purification. Chastening, or discipline, as we would call it, for the believer is a topic not often appreciated or desired to be reminded of. Yet, God chastens His children, and that is a fact of life for the believer. Whom the Lord loves, He chastens and scourges every child whom he receives. And the Bible goes on and says, if we as professing believers never have the chastening of the Lord, then we are not his children, we are illegitimate. Meaning we have a false profession of faith and are not saved. So if we get out of line and do not follow God as he would have us to, and we refuse the conviction of the Lord, and refuse to repent of our sin, He will chasten us. And His chastening can be very, very difficult. And I would encourage you this afternoon to look at your own life. Now, if you have had sin in your life, and you have not dealt with that sin, and you're not having the chastening of the Lord over that sin, and God has convicted you of that sin and you're not dealing with it, then you're, going, you're in for the Lord's chastening. He's going to put you in the prison of purification. And it's not going to be a pleasant experience. The best way to stay out of jail is to abide by the law. And the best way to stay out of God's jail of purification is to confess our sin and forsake it. But discipline or chastening is one of those things that Often people and believers don't like to talk about. Proverbs 13, 11, and 12 says, Do not despise the Lord's instruction, my son, and do not loathe his discipline. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, just as a father disciplines the son in whom he delights. And we find that again pretty much over in Hebrews chapter 12. To ignore the chastening of the Lord is to do one's self an injustice. To ignore it. Proverbs 15, 32. Anyone who ignores discipline despises himself. But whoever listens to correction acquires good sense. Samson was a man for whom God had great plans. A Nazarite whom God desired to be a judge and deliverer of Israel in a much needed day for holy living. And we find that in chapter 13, verse 1 to 5, where God told his parents, 
that he would be born and he was to be a Nazarite from birth. With Samson's birth came great potential and opportunity to glorify God and bring relief to Israel. Unfortunately, he never reached the potential God had in store for him. Even though the Spirit of God was upon him, Samson failed to walk in the Holy Spirit's leading and power, but chose his own way instead. Because of his choices, Samson found himself in the prison of God's chastening and purification. Let's look first of all at the road to prison. The road to prison. I'm not going to read a lot of this because you are familiar with the account. But first of all, it's a road that did not have to be traveled. It did not have to be traveled. God does not want his children to travel the road that leads to the prison of purification. He doesn't want that. However, Samson chose to go that way. Because of that, secondly, it was a road of disobedience. It was a road of disobedience, and that's what it is between the father and his children. When the children are not obedient to the father, the father will deal with them if they do not confess that disobedience and make it right with the father. And so on this road to disobedience, A, or point one, there was this Nazarite vow that his parents were to bring him up under. And that's found over in number six that you can read later. But in that Nazarite vow, number one, point A, they were never to cut their hair. B, they were never to drink strong drink. C, they were never to touch a dead body, human or animal. That's basically the three requirements. Now, it was a vow. Therefore, point D, all of this was to be voluntary. And for the time stated by the person who made the vow. So it was like someone chose to dedicate themselves directly to God for a period of time in the Old Testament, and they would go and announce that they were placing upon themselves a Nazarite vow. And, and this is for males. It would be something where the male would not cut his hair, he would not take in strong drink, and he would not touch any dead body. If he violated any of those points, then his Nazarite vow was broken. And he would have to start all over again, especially if he had not fulfilled that vow. But once he had fulfilled the vow, then he no longer had this restriction on him. But it was a voluntary thing. The purpose behind the Nazarite vow was so that the person could give themselves completely to God for a time, the time of the vow. Point F, God had made this choice for Samson since he wanted Samson to be fully dedicated to his service and fellowship. Now, some could argue the point and say, well, but Samson didn't make this choice on his own. God forced it on him. So really, Samson didn't have to live by it. Mm, that's not true. Remember I said this morning, all that God does is holy and right. And this is a holy and righteous act that God wanted and decided to take place. 
his parents understood what a Nazarite vow was. And from what we look as we talk about and read through the passage dealing with, with Samson and the things that he went through, there were many times that he violated the vow but never told his parents. And it states that in the Scripture. So he was raised with the understanding of what was required of him and is well aware of what he was supposed to do. And he was trained to be a Nazarite, not by choice, but by the commandment of God. It was a calling of God on him. Just as when God called people into full-time ministry, whether it be a pastor, an evangelist, or a missionary, whether it be a male or female, not, not the first part for the female, but female missionaries. These people, as they give themselves to service for God, have set themselves apart from the rest of the world, not making them better than other people, but they've made this commitment to God to serve Him in this capacity, doing whatever it is that God calls them to do. Therefore, the Lord will lead them, guide them, establish things for them that he wouldn't necessarily do for someone who has not committed to full-time ministry. Let's take Emily Snodgrass, for example, or Heather Hart, two young ladies that we support on the mission field. They have made this position and made this decision to serve God as a missionary, which means they're not putting on number one priority to go looking for a husband as many and most young women would do. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's the natural process of life. But these two young ladies have dedicated themselves to God. Now what if the Lord sent a man along to be a husband to them? Then that's okay. But it would be something that God is doing or God has done. Let's take other missionary families that we have in our church. They have gone, they've left their families behind. They have gone to serve on a foreign field to establish themselves on a foreign field, which means there are many birthday events they miss, many Christmases and Thanksgivings that they miss. Why? Because they have set themselves apart to serve the Lord. Do they see that as a sacrifice? No. It's part of the call. It's part of that which they've dedicated themselves to. When a Nazarite took this vow, he was not to look at, he couldn't cut his hair, as a problem. It was a, a distinguishing mark of the fact that he was under a Nazarite vow. When he did not take strong drink, he was not to look at it, oh, boy, I'm under privilege. No, he was to look at it, I have dedicated myself, therefore I don't have a problem with this. Corpses, if a family member died, he was not to go to that funeral. He was not to be around that dead body. Why? Because he had given himself over to this Nazarite vow. And for the extended period of time that he established it, he was required to fulfill it. Here, God has called Samson in a unique and wonderful way to serve him because God made this choice for Samson because he wanted Samson to dedicate himself to God's service and to fellowship with God. That's an important point there. God wanted this fellowship with Samson. So we see this Nazarite vow. Secondly, point two, Samson's acts that broke that vow. He married a woman outside the nation of Israel. Now that was not part of the Nazarite vow, but that was a violation of the Old Testament law. They were not to marry people 
that were Gentiles. And he did that. B, he touched the carcass of a lion, which he had killed earlier because he wanted some of the honey that had begun, the bees had made a, a nest in there and were developing their honey there. And he, want, he, he, you get that he? He wanted some honey. A total disregard for the vow that he was not to touch a dead corpse. And if you read that section of scripture there in chapter 14, you'll see that he did not tell his mom and his dad where he got the honey. Why? Because it would have been a direct violation of the Nazarite vow, and he didn't want them to find out. Then last point, see, he enabled, he enabled the cutting off of his hair. And that's where we pick up with chapter 16, verse 15. It's the story of Samson and Delilah. You know the account there where the Philistines uh, have, Samson just pretty much showed himself, if I may say that, in the first few verses where he spent the night with a harlot down in Gaza. And then he was told that the, the Gazites saying, Samson has come hither, and they compassed him round about. They were going to capture him. So he just marched out the city and took the gates of the city with him. Now, that's not an easy task to do. If we were to have someone come in here and, and decide they're going to leave this building and take the two front doors with them, that would be hard, nigh impossible without supernatural power. Well, these doors would not compare at all with the gates of the city. And he just picked them up and walked off with them, showing his supernatural power. Well, he, that happened. Then later, in verse 4, it came to pass afterward, some time later, he fell in love with Delilah. And the Philistines came and said to her, if you will entice him, to show where his great strength lies, then we will pay you for it. We will capture him and we will pay you. And it was no small sum that she was going to get from these Philistine lords. So she took that and she began to talk with Samson about where his strength was and the source of his strength. And he gave her Three different times, three different things that he said to her that would bring about a weakness in his body like normal people. And then we come to verse 15. She said unto him, How canst thou say, I love thee, when thine heart is not with me? Thou hast mocked me these three times, and hast not told me wherein thy great strength lieth. And it came to pass when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him so that his soul was vexed unto death. Not really. He wasn't going to literally die. He was just sick and tired of this woman nagging. If I may use it in Ron Vitoski vernacular. She just wouldn't let it go. All the time he's with her, that was their relationship. Her wanting to know the source of his strength. And he just got fed up with it. I can't take this any longer. His soul was vexed. And he told her, verse 17, all his heart 
and said unto her, There hath not come a razor upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite unto God from my mother's womb. If I be shaven, then my strength will go from me, and I shall be weak like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent, called the lords of the Philistines, said, Come at once. He's told me the source of his strength. Bring your money with you. You see that in verse 18? Bring your money with you. You come, but you bring your money with you. And so she caused him to fall asleep. I, I, as I read this, like Brad said this morning, I want to put myself into this. I can't figure out what in the world unless she drugged him. Because how in the world are you going to take this guy with this hair, and it's a lot of it, and have some other man come in, and they didn't have clippers, they didn't have scissors, they probably used some sort of cutting device or a knife. That's going to pull on the hair of your head. There had to be something take place. And God was not causing him to sleep like this. God wanted him to be a Nazarite, so keep his hair. But he had chosen to disobey God and violate God's commandments. And now he falls into this deep sleep on her knees, and she calls in a guy, and he shaves off the seven locks of his hair. And she began to afflict him, just taunt him or to gouge him to whatever, to wake him up. And his strength went from him. And she said, The Philistines be upon thee, Samson. And he awoke out of his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times before and shake myself. Look at the next words. And he did not know. He wist not that the Lord had departed from him. This is what happens in the life of a believer who rejects the discipline of God and the conviction of God, someone whom God deals with and shows them their sin in their life and brings that conviction into their heart, that initial moment of conviction of sin will be the strongest that you'll ever have. Let me say that again. That initial moment of conviction from God over a sin in your life will be the strongest conviction you'll ever have about that sin. If you don't address it then, the next time that conviction will be weaker. Not because God has gotten weaker, it's because you have built up a resistance to God. You have chosen to harden your heart against the conviction of God about your sin. Which means by then you're probably beginning to make some kind of excuse for it. And God will convict you again. And so now you're making an even stronger excuse for your sin. To the point where you no longer feel the conviction of the Lord. Because you have convinced yourself that your sin is not a big thing. It's not something that needs to be dealt with. And then someone will come along and cut off your hair. And you'll lose your presence of God. And he will leave and you will not even know he's gone. Now, do you cease to be his child? No. Not if you're truly born again. But there is no relationship between you and the Lord. 
And the sad part is that you don't miss it. You don't miss that. You filled God's place with everything else under the sun. And this is where Samson is. He doesn't even realize that the power of God is no longer on him. And we come to verse 21, and we see point C. We've looked at the road to prison is a road that doesn't have to be traveled. It's a road of disobedience. And C, it's a road of shame. It's a road of shame. But the Philistines took him and put out his eyes. They literally took their fingers and dug them into his eye sockets and pulled out his eyeballs. Say, preacher, that's gross. That's just how it was. They hated him so much they really didn't care of the torture that it caused him and the pain and the agony. Now, Samson has lost his power. He's just like every other human being now. He has no resistance to this. So he not only experiences this event, but he experiences all the pain and the suffering that goes with that experience. Why? Because God has had to lock him up in prison. In the prison of purification, God has warned him and warned him and warned him, and he's refused to heed the warning of God. Now God locks him up in prison. It is not a pretty picture when you meet a believer that God has locked up in prison. Oh, they walk around normally. They go through life normally, but usually their lives are miserable. They're extremely unhappy. Things unbelievable, unimaginable happen to them that wouldn't normally be happening to the normal, obedient believer. Maybe tragedies come into their life. They may lose their job. They may lose their marriage. They may lose someone very dear to them. And it's tragic to see that. And you know good and well because you have been in their life. You have tried to encourage them to do the right thing. And now you see them in this prison and it's just tragic to know they're there because they chose not to listen to God Almighty and go the way that God wanted them to go with their life. But it happens. And this is what happened to Samson. It became a road of shame. So they gouged out his eyes, and they brought him down to Gaza and bound him with fetters of brass, those things that before he had just plucked off and went on his way, now are keeping him captive. And he did grind in the prison house. He went from being one who walked off with the gates of the city to one now who is bound to this wheel and he walks around all day long grinding grain for the Philistines to eat. It's a road of shame. So the road to prison. Secondly, the road to promotion. Verse 22. Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. The road to promotion, point A, or... In the parentheses, oh, the joy of forgiveness and restoration. Point A, sometimes you just have to let nature take its course. 
his hair began to grow again. And the Philistines didn't catch on to that. They thought, we cut off his hair, his strength is gone. Not realizing and understanding that he's under a Nazarite vow. And when his hair grows back, there's a good possibility something unique will take place. So his hair began to grow back. Then in verse 23, the lords of the Philistines gathered themselves together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon their god and to rejoice. For they said, our god hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hand. Now this didn't happen immediately after Samson's been captured because his hair has to have time to grow back out. So that tells us that Samson spent a long time in the prison. A long time he spent in humiliation and shame. A long time he spent in grinding grain. A long time he had to think about his past life and his total disobedience of the vow that was upon him. He's had a long time to reevaluate life and hopefully make some change. And so we find here that these people gather together to have this celebration to their idol god, Dagon, a fish god, because they said that God, their God, had delivered Samson out of their, into their hands. And when the people saw him, they praised their God, for they said, Our God hath delivered into our hands our enemy, and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. So you see what impact he has had in the nation of the Philistines as a judge, even a disobedient judge. But he has not delivered Israel as the judge was supposed to do. And he's not been a very good judge over Israel. He's been a very poor testimony. And so we find that it came to pass, verse 25, when their hearts were merry, that they said, call for Samson, that he may make us sport, or he may give us a performance. He can perform. What's he going to do? He's going to stand there with his eyes gouged out, and whatever he's done, fumbling around, trying to just be there and exist, and they're going to call that a big act, a big performance. They're going to gloat in that. This man's weakness and inability, where before he has come in and destroyed their nation and killed many of their people. So now he's going to stand there in absolute shame and humiliation, and they're going to call it sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport, and they set him between the pillars. So in verse 23 to 25, we see that God used the sin of the sinner to bring about his will. And unfortunately, God does that. He will use the sin that the believer has involved themselves in often to bring them to the end of themselves. And so God chose to use the sin of the sinner to bring about his will. Not necessarily the sin of Samson, but the sin of the people here as they're giving honor to their God and they're using Samson and making him a, an object of humiliation. So they bring him out, they set him between the pillars of this huge uh, arena where they are gathered. Then we see that Samson 
said to the lad that led him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. So Samson wishes to revenge his tormentors, and he asks for direction from the enemy. Notice here, there's a Samson has been this unbeatable opponent to the Philistines. Now he is in such, hum, such humble estate that he's being led around by a boy. And that boy is controlling what Samson does and where he goes. And Samson asks, he doesn't demand, he asks, would you please put me between the pillars of this building? Then in verse 27, now the house was full of men and women and all the lords of the Philistines were there. And there were upon the roof about 3,000 men and women that beheld while Samson put on a performance. Verse 28, and Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. Note in your notes, point D. Samson finally realized his need of God. This is the only record of Samson communicating with God. Look where he had to go and to the lowest state he had to reach before he ever decided it was time that he talked with God personally. This was a Nazarite, a man dedicated to such unique fellowship and relationship with God that when he was in that position and in that vow, it was to be a time where he drew so close to God, even more so than he would have otherwise. But in all that time, we never see him praying. But now in this prison of purification and in this path of shame, he finally prays to God. Secondly, in spite of that, God answered his only recorded prayer. And then God never shames us. He reclaims us. He never shames us. He reclaims us as his children. And so we find here, he prayed this prayer. Then in verse 29, he took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood. It's not a house, it's a coliseum. It's a huge edifice. It has to be big to have 3,000 people on the roof and it not cave in. So we're talking an enormous crowd of Philistines and an enormous facility. And God put him, but allowed him to be between those two pillars that held up the building. On the one which side was borne up and one with his left hand, one with his right hand. He grabbed hold of those pillars. And verse number 30, and Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his life. 
on this road to promotion, Samson finally fulfilled his call from God. And what a tragic way he had to do so. Then the last but not least, then his brethren and all the house of his father came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Esthral in the burying place Manoah, his father, and he judged Israel 20 years. Last but not least, the road to preservation. And as they would go and visit that place where Samson was buried, he would not be remembered for the disobedience. He would be remembered for the fact that he brought down this enormous facility on the Philistines and brought deliverance to Israel. The road to preservation. What a tragic account of one who's had such great potential and power of God on him. The prison of purification will more than likely be a painful experience, but is meant to bring the believer more into line with Christ. However, it is not a prison the believer has to be placed in if we will remain obedient to our Savior and Master. May we learn from this this afternoon. Lord, I pray this message will be a warning to me that I would never want to go into the prison of purification and that I would not walk down the path that required me to be locked up. God, that I would walk down the path of obedience and I would serve you with all of my heart and with all my mind, with all my soul. And I pray, Father, that you would help everyone here this afternoon that we would determine that we do not want to be like Samson, but we want to be people that are liberated by the power of God from ourselves and from our sin and from the world. So I pray you'll give us that desire and help us to live accordingly. We know, Lord, that if you order it, you'll pay for it. And you order us to live holy lives, and you've made the provision that it can happen. It's just a matter of us making the decision to do so and resting in you and letting you work in our lives. So help us this week, we pray. We'll give you the glory and the praise for what you do in Jesus' name. Amen.